We have several readings today from Jeremiah and Isaiah and from Matthew. These are God's words. Jeremiah 4, uh, Jeremiah 1, 4 to 10 and 14 to 19. Now the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. I have appointed thee a prophet unto the nations. And then I said, Ah, Lord Yahweh, behold, I know not how to speak, for I am a child. But Yahweh said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for to whomsoever I shall send thee, thou shalt go, and whatsoever I shall command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid because of them, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith Yahweh. Then Yahweh put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and Yahweh said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down and to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Then Yahweh said unto me, Out of the north evil shall break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, saith Yahweh, and they shall come, and they shall set every one his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, and against all the walls thereof around about, and against all the cities of Judah. And I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness, in that they have forsaken me, and have burned incense unto other gods, and worshipped the works of their own hands. Thou, therefore, gird up thy loins, and arise, and speak unto them all that I command thee. Be not dismayed at them, lest I dismay thee before them. For behold, I have made thee this day a fortified city, and an iron pillar, and brazen walls, against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against the princes thereof, against the priests thereof, and against the people of the land. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee, for I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to deliver thee. Now Isaiah twenty-two twenty to 23 it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government unto his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, and he shall open and none shall, sh shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open." And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a throne of glory to his father's house. Matthew sixteen thirteen to 19. Now when Jesus came into the parts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But... Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the anointed, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say unto thee that thou art Peter, or Rocky, and upon this rock I will build my congregation, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
And finally, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, immersing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. These are God's words. Please be seated. We are looking today at the nature of the church. And more specifically, I want to answer the question, what makes a church a church? What distinguishes a church from a Bible study, for instance? What distinguishes a church from a prayer group? Or if a bunch of Christian friends from around the country were to go on a camp together and meet together on Sunday, is that a church? Most importantly, of course, the reason that we are asking this question, are we a church? If we are not a church, what do we have to do to become a church? Or if we are a church, are we doing anything wrong or missing anything that a church ought to have or do? These are the kinds of questions I want to answer for us. We will not be able to answer them all in just this one sermon. I I promise we will make good and clear progress today, but I will try to complete answering them next week. Today we're going to look at one very foundational principle that we can build upon in order to be able to answer other questions next week. And although I've just read a number of scriptures, I'm actually not going to exegete them in the way that I normally would, the way that you're accustomed to hearing me work through scripture. But you will see how they are relevant as we progress, and I will draw in elements from them to explain and support the doctrines that we are learning. What I actually want to do is start somewhere else, somewhere other than scripture. I want to make sure that we have the most basic basics in place. I want to go to definitions. We need to make sure that we know what the Greek word behind this term church that we use is and means before we start going any deeper. Because asking this question, understanding this term, will actually give us a great deal of clarity as we move into more theological reasoning. You probably noticed that where you would normally read the word church in our passages in Matthew, what we read instead is congregation. I want you to understand why it is important that I put that word there, because it makes a material difference to understanding what the Bible says about the church. The situation here is much like when we looked at the word baptism back in John 1. Do you remember how I talked about Christianese back then? Christianese is like jargon that Bible translators use and Christians in general use. And there are lots of specifically Christian terms, of course, like justification or regeneration, being born again. These are not necessarily Christianese. Christianese is when these terms come to take on a different meaning than what Scripture itself actually intends. So a good example that we've looked at before is the word Christ, which actually means anointed, but which most Christians think of much more like Jesus' surname. And I would say most Christians, if you were to ask them, what does Christ mean? They would not actually know that it is the word anointed in Greek, which is, of course, very important. 
Another word is baptize, which I argued back in the beginning of John we should really translate as immerse, even though baptism by sprinkling is legitimate, because immersion is what the Greek word almost always signifies. A third that we've looked at is pastor, and I've said, you know, we shouldn't really use the word pastor, we should say shepherd, because pastor is just Latin, the shepherd, but we speak English, not Latin. And a fourth is the word church. In Greek, this is ekklesia. You've probably heard this word, ekklesia, before. Certainly, you would have heard the word ecclesiology, which comes from ecclesia, and ecclesiastical. Ecclesiastical means having to do with the church. Ecclesiology has to do with the doctrine of the church. What is it? How should it be structured? And so on. And what we are doing in this sermon is ecclesiology. The Greek word ekklesia is usually translated as church. That is the traditional translation, and Bible translators are very, very hesitant to remove themselves from traditional translations because they have to make (laughs) money, and people don't like to buy Bibles that aren't familiar. But let me give you an example of why this is Christianese. As you know, I read from the American Standard Version, which is not a popular version for many reasons. One of them is because it made some... It was much more consistent in the way that it translated some words. It's pretty consistent in translating the Greek word word ekklesia as church. It's not 100%, but it's consistent enough to illustrate my point. So, for instance, in Acts 7.38, speaking of Moses, we read, This is he that was in the church in the wilderness. Meaning, of course, that Moses was in the congregation, the congregation of Israel in the wilderness, which is how most other Bibles translate it, because... This is my point. Church does not make sense here, the way that we use it. The the word church has come to take on, for us, a much more technical and narrow meaning than the word ecclesia actually has in Scripture. And to see how much broader the term ecclesia is, we can skip ahead to Acts 19. This is where Demetrius, the silversmith, excuse me, silversmith, incites a riot against Paul and the other Christians because they're converting so many people from idol worship. Demetrius is an idol maker, an idol founder. He warns the other idol makers, idol smiths, that they are going to be out of business if Paul keeps up his work because he keeps converting people to Christ so they stop worshipping the idols and eventually Artemis herself may be deposed from her magnificence. In Acts 19, 28, we read, When they heard this, they were filled with wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater. And some therefore cried one thing, and some another, for the ecclesia was in confusion. And the larger part knew not, wherefore they were even come together. And then again, when the city clerk quiets the multitude... A little bit further on, he tells them in Acts 19.38, If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen that are with him have a matter against any man, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them accuse one another. But if ye seek anything about other matters, it shall be settled in the regular ecclesia. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the ecclesia. Now, obviously, it makes no sense to speak of a town meeting as a church in modern English. This is what this essentially was, as a bunch of people getting together to have a town meeting. It was not the regular scheduled town meeting. What is being referred to here is a congregation. And this is how scripture uses the word ecclesia. And so this is, I think, how we should translate it consistently to better understand what it means. 
So ecclesia, church, means congregation, and we are concerned today with learning the nature specifically of Christ's ecclesia, Jesus's ecclesia, his congregation, which these days is normally called the church, and I will continue to call it the church because I'm not going to be pedantic about these things. When you think about this language, Christ's congregation, Christ's church, it actually raises the very first question that we need to consider. What is the extent of this congregation? We are accustomed to speaking both of the church and of individual churches. And we instinctively understand that these smaller churches are part of the church. This is accurate to how scripture itself speaks. We can say congregation instead of church, but the point remains the same. For instance, we read of the congregation, which was in Jerusalem in Acts 11.22, and the congregation that is at Cancrea in Romans 16.1. And Paul says that all the congregations of Christ salute you in Romans 16.16. So these are individual congregations. Yet he also speaks and tells us that there is only one congregation of Christ, For instance, he says how God has put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the congregation, Ephesians 1.22. This obviously refers to the whole congregation, the universal congregation, the complete group of everyone covenantally joined to Christ. In the same way, Paul tells us a considerable amount about this universal congregation and its relationship to Christ In Ephesians 5, so let me read from verse 23 to verse 33, and this may seem out of left field, but I do have a point here. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the congregation, being himself the savior of the body. But as the congregation is subject to Christ, so let the wives also be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the congregation and gave himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, having cleansed it by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the congregation to himself a glorious one, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Even so, ought husbands also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his own wife loveth himself. For no man hath ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as Christ also the congregation, because we are members of his body. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I speak in regard of Christ and of the congregation. Nevertheless, do ye also severally love each one his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see that she fear her husband. Now, I read this passage in full, not because I want to remind you of your marital duties, though that certainly is a good thing to be reminded of, but because I want you to see the emphasis that Paul places on the church, the congregation, being Christ's body. He uses the terms interchangeably. Jesus is the head of We are, the congregation as a whole, is the body. And husbands must love their wives as their own bodies. They are are themselves, he says. No one hated his own flesh. And we must do this because this is an image, a symbol of Christ and his congregation. 
We are members of this body, and the body as a whole is one flesh with Christ himself. And this reality is the true marriage, which is why wives also, he says at the end, should fear their husbands, because the church fears Christ. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is just another example of what we have called theomorphism, God-shapedness. Marriage is God-shaped. It is not that Christ and the church are like marriage. It is that marriage is like Christ and the church. So Ephesians 5 tells us that the church is a body, and this actually explains why it is possible for us to speak of the church and also of a church without contradicting ourselves. How can there be just one church, just one congregation of Christ, when there are many churches? It is simple. The church is a body, and bodies are fractal. We've talked about fractalness before, right? There is one body that has a head and many members, and then within that body, smaller groups have the same form. They make up smaller heads and bodies, all the way down to individual members who are themselves bodies with heads. And this is how it can be that we can have, say, John Knox Presbyterian Church. And that this church is a single body, and yet it is also part of, say, the Church of Scotland. And that church, too, is a single body, and yet it is also part of the Universal Church. And that church, too, is a single body. There is a local congregation, there is a regional congregation, there is a universal congregation, and these are not competing realities. They are fractal realities. Understanding the congregation as a body, as a fractal body, is absolutely crucial to understanding its nature at all. Again, we are dumb Westerners, and so we think the church is like a body. We think bodies are physical things that we have, and okay, the church is like that. It's a metaphor. No, we have things the wrong way around again. The church is not like a body. The church is a body. And our bodies are physical expressions of the same pattern that the church follows, the spiritual pattern of a body. A body, a true body, is, this is my best effort at definition, a self-governing nexus of powers. Okay, let me, let me explain that. So a self-governing nexus of powers. Self-governing, it manages and it regulates itself. It is self-contained. It can rule itself. And a nexus of powers is the point at which various capabilities or functions are unified or combined or integrated into one where they can be exercised. Remember, we've talked about integration as well before. It's all connected. No pun intended. Or... Maybe better said, the pun is the point. So a body is a self-governing nexus of powers, a point at which various abilities are integrated into a self-governing whole so that it can act. A place at which certain functions and abilities come together and are controlled and ruled from within. Now this might sound very abstruse, but it's actually really important. I'm not getting mystical about the spiritual pattern of bodies, true bodies, just because symbolism is interesting. It is because if we don't understand what a body really is, if we think of it as just a physical thing, 
And if we think that the body of Christ is just a metaphor that trades on that physical thing, we won't get the right understanding of the church itself. We have to understand that a body is a self-governing integration point for various powers or capacities to be able to figure out what the church is and also to figure out what a church is, what makes a church a church. This is the question that we want to start answering today. What is it that makes a church a church? So remember the Greek word for church or congregation is ekklesia. But there is something about this word that I've said should be translated as congregation. There's something about it that we actually cannot translate into English. There isn't a word in English that captures it completely because ecclesia means slightly more than congregation does in English. If you went to a craft market, for instance, you would find there a congregation. You would find there a gathering of people, people congregated together. But you would not find an ecclesia. This is because in the ancient world, an ecclesia was a self-governing congregation. Philip Kaiser defines it in the following way. He says an ecclesia was any organization that bypassed Roman law altogether by trying its own cases. In other words, an ecclesia was a body. It was self-governing, self-directed, self-regulating. It had its own powers and it had authority within itself, an authority structure, for exercising those powers. The group of people who happen to be at a craft market, the congregation there, they're not like this. They're not a body. But the group of people who Demetrius got together to do something about Paul, that was a body. You notice the city clerk tells them they should go to the courts if they have an accusation against Paul. They were an ecclesia because they were trying to be self-directed. They were trying to be a self-governing group, exercising their own powers against Paul. Now, they were not a lawful body, which is the city clerk's point, but they were a body. They were the same kind of thing that the church is, although the church, of course, is lawful. And this is why Paul is so shocked at the Corinthians. We get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We read some odd things. He says, Dare any of you, having a matter against his neighbor, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or know ye not that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have to judge things pertaining to this life, do ye set them to judge who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. What? Cannot there be found among you one wise man who shall be able to decide between his brothers? But brother goeth to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Nay, Already it is altogether a defect in you that ye have lawsuits one with another. Why not rather take it wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? No, but ye yourselves do wrong and defraud, and that your brothers. That's 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 8. Paul assumes here that the congregation, the church of God, is self-governing. It is self-directing. It directs its own members. It manages its own affairs. It judges its own disputes. 
It exercises its own powers. It must be this way. It cannot be otherwise, because it is uniquely the body of Christ. If Christ is its head, then the state cannot be. The church is not regulated by Caesar because it is regulated by Christ. You cannot have two masters. If you are subject to Caesar, then Caesar is your head. But how can Christ's body have two heads? You know what happens to snakes born with two heads? One head tries to go one way, and the other head tries to go the other way, and it splits the body down the middle. It dies. No, you cannot have two heads. The church is governed by Christ and by its lawful officers who represent him. And this is actually codified into the laws of England and Scotland, for instance, which is why churches there were recently able to successfully sue the government for violating their right to govern themselves by telling them to lock down for COVID. They won this lawsuit against the government. You see, the church in England and the church in Scotland, they may be emaciated now, they may be thin and dying and starving because they're being fed very, very thin milk and no meat, but it was not always so. There was a time when it preached the law of Christ to Caesar, and Caesar listened. And by Caesar, of course, I mean the civil government, the king and the parliament. For Christ is indeed the head of all principality and power. Colossians 2.10, having gone into heaven, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him, 1 Peter 3.22, which is why we will judge angels, for we as his body act on his behalf. Remember, remember what we've learned about how Jesus is integrating all things into himself and how his end game is that the kingdom of this world becomes his own kingdom. He achieves this not through civil power, not through the work of nations, but through the work of his church upon nations. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth, Revelation 1.5, and the rightful head of all nations, but it is not through the nations that he advances his rule. It is through the church. He is pleased to use the ministry of word and sacrament exercised through local congregations to increase the recognition and the establishment and the promotion of his reign everywhere over all things. And for this very reason, he commands, as our Great Commission, as we read, that we make the nations into disciples, instructing them in his law and training them in righteousness. This is what happened in England and Scotland during the Reformation. And the Christians there in England and Scotland today are still benefiting from the legacy of those faithful churches. But there will come a day... When the church holds sway like that again, not just over England and Scotland, God assures us, but over the whole world. And this will not obliterate national borders. It will not destroy cultural differences. And it will certainly not do away with the need for civil governance and magistrates. But Christ's rule will be established over all of these things through the church, through his body. But... And here is the crucial question. How can the church do this if it is governed by the nations that it exists within? I'm not speaking of individuals. This is not about individual Christians obeying lawful commands of magistrates as Romans 13 requires. As I said, civil governance will still continue. 
I'm speaking of corporate governance, body governance. I'm speaking of the body of Christ. How can this body, the church, fulfill the Great Commission if it is not self-governing under Christ? How can the church preach Christ's government to Caesar if it is actually under Caesar's government? This is what was at stake in Corinth with believers taking each other to court before unrighteous pagan proconsuls. How can they do that when they are members of a body that is authorized and empowered by Christ himself to judge and instruct righteously on any issue of good or evil? How can they remove themselves from the blessings of Christ's righteous judgment and abdicate their duty to exercise that judgment on his behalf by placing themselves under the judgment of Caesar and his proconsuls? Do you see the implications of this? Do you see how important it is? It is fundamental to the nature of the church that it must be a self-governing body. That's actually a redundant expression because there's no such thing as a non-self-governing body. That would be a dead body. It is fundamental to what a body is that it's self-governing. But I say it this way because we are dumb Westerners and we don't think like that automatically. Christ's congregation, whether we are talking about the universal church throughout history or about the smallest local church that is there today and gone tomorrow, not us, let's hope, we won't be gone tomorrow, Christ's congregation is a self-governing body that is not subject to any other government but Christ. And because it is governed by him, because it is his body, it is responsible to act on his behalf and to uphold his rule, and to exercise the powers that he has given to it. Remember, the body is a nexus of powers. This is what Jesus means when he says to Peter, on this rock, I will build my congregation. The rock, I think this is very obvious, despite what some people will say, the rock, obviously, is Peter's declaration. You are the anointed, the son of the living God. It is about Jesus' kingship. It is, in fact, the gospel itself. The man who hears Jesus' words, Jesus tells us, and does them, is like the man who built his house on rock. Well, Jesus follows his own advice. He builds his house on the rock of his gospel. This is what the church is, the house that is built upon, or the body that grows from the rock, the head that is Christ. It has no other foundation, and it has no other head. Its power does not come from chariots and horses, and neither does it answer to them. It answers to Christ alone, and it gets its power from Christ alone. So at the most basic level, we have now found at least part of a definition of a church or the church, and it's not really what you would expect looking at Western churches, is it? A church is a body grounded on the confession of Christ's rule over all things, governed by Christ as he rules over all things, and acting on behalf of Christ to extend his rule over all things. And there are some questions that you probably have at this point. For instance, what about worship? I haven't even mentioned worship. Surely that is definitional to what a church is. Shouldn't it you know, be in the definition? What about size? How big does the church need to be before it becomes a church? Does it need to have a certain number of members? 
What about elders? Doesn't it need to have those? What about the sacraments? And if you're quite quick, you also might be wondering, what about parachurch organizations? Because couldn't they come under this definition as well? I am going to get to those questions. I'm not trying to give you a complete definition today. I'm only laying a foundation for a complete definition. But I want to camp here and look at what we have so far, because what we have learned so far has enormous ramifications. The church is a polis. Do you know what a polis is? (laughs) Polis is the Greek word for a city-state. It is a self-governing, self-contained community that can exist amongst other competing polices. The church is the polis of God, the city-state of God. This is where our passage from Jeremiah and Isaiah also finally come into play. This is what the keys and the binding and the loosing are all about. Christ has given to his church the authority to act on his behalf in opening and closing the gates of the city of God. Or more correctly, because the church is Christ's body on earth, when Christ acts to open and close the city of God to people on earth, he does so through his body, the church. But it is also what the point of the language of conquest and authority is about. A polis can make war on other polices. You see Jeremiah 1, 9 to 10, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck them up and to break down and to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. This is speaking to Jeremiah. But is it not also speaking to Christ? Of course. And if it is speaking to Christ, then how does he do this? Well, it is through his body. Look at verses 17 to 19. Thou therefore gird up thy loins and arise and speak unto them all that I command thee. Be not dismayed at them, lest I dismay thee before them. For behold, I have made thee this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and brazen walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against the princes thereof, against the priests thereof, and against the people of the land. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee, for I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to deliver thee. Now, there are too many threads for me to reasonably draw together all of the scriptures that connect to every single passage. But think about how the church is described. In Revelation, it is the new Jerusalem, a city. Think about how Paul describes us as tearing down strongholds and fortifications, using spiritual weapons to conquer the powers and principalities. They're trying to retain their control over the nations. Think about how Jesus describes us as a city on a hill. Think of how he tells Peter that the gates of Hades will not prevail against us. That is, we will besiege Hades and we will destroy its gates and plunder it. Think of how Paul describes the church as a pillar and base of the truth, just as Jeremiah is a pillar Think of how Jesus sends his disciples out to make disciples, saying, Behold, I am with thee, echoing the language of Yahweh to Jeremiah. Fortunately, I do not need to exhaustively prove to you that the church really has been set up over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and to pluck down, uh, to break down and destroy and overthrow and build and plant, because I can quote Daniel here, and I know that I don't have to explain my working, because you already understand the post-millennial hope of what the gospel of Jesus' kingship actually does. So Daniel chapter 2, 44 and 7, 27. In the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, 
nor shall the sovereignty thereof be left to another people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all those kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. But look at the implications of this. We said before that a church is a body grounded on the confession of Christ's rule over all things, governed by Christ as he rules over all things, and acting on behalf of Christ to extend his rule over all things. In other words, it is a single church, a local church, is a fractal part of Christ's body as Christ rules. But look at what this means for the very nature of the church. Look at what it means for the question of what makes a church a church. And what it means when we consider any given church, if we're thinking, should I join this church? Is this church actually a church? Or is it a church in name only? The first thing that we should be asking, the fundamental question, is, is it confessing Christ's governance of all things, embodying Christ's government, and acting on behalf of Christ's government in the world? In other words, does it actually, not in word, but in deed, have Christ as its head? Now, there are lots of ways that churches have to think this through and apply this in practice. And there are lots of complex questions that we could ask about how it works out practically, how the jurisdiction of church and state overlap, how the government of the church relates to the government of the state. I'm not going to try to answer these questions today because it isn't the point of the sermon The question that we want to answer today is simply what makes a church the church? And the answer is that the one thing it must do is be self-governing under Christ's governance. And this actually speaks to the very existence of Redwood itself. Why did we start a new church? Why could we not become members of an existing church? Jared and I have received a lot of flack over this, a lot of criticism, and there are churches nearby who do not even consider us a valid or legitimate church at all because they think that we're being schismatic. Well, we'll get more into a lot of the questions of valid and legitimate churches next week to see what Scripture says about that, but we can start right here. A valid and legitimate church is under Christ's government, no one else's. Because Christ is its master, and because by Christ's own testimony you cannot have two masters, it has only Christ as its master. And this, very sadly, is why we had to start a new church. We could not find a church. Do you see what I'm saying? What I mean is we could not find a congregation that was truly under Christ's government. Being under Christ's government means not being under Caesar's. And all the churches we could find were under Caesar's government. They didn't even try to hide it. Now this might sound extreme, and I I don't intend it to be. I don't want you to, to interpret this as an absolute statement, like I'm saying that none of the churches around us are actually really churches at all. Now that might sound like what I'm saying, and I understand why you would think that, but it's not, because... A congregation can profess Christ's government and know Christ's government and yet fail to embody it just as a man can profess Christ but be pressured into denying him as Peter himself was. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
We all fail in many ways, so I am not presuming to judge these churches. I dare not presume to do that. Who am I to judge another man's slave? The Lord will rebuke them. Yet it is simply a fact that no church in our region has maintained the exclusive government of Christ. No church has acted as if Christ truly were their only ruler. They have all acted as if Jacinda is their Lord. And unfortunately, they do not even have the excuse of being confused over jurisdiction. Like I said before, there are a lot of complicated questions about how these jurisdictions overlap. And churches can certainly be forgiven for coming to different conclusions and getting things wrong occasionally in the complex gray areas. If they have been ordered by the state to do something wrong that the state normally has jurisdiction in and they had caved, that would be one thing. But it was not that. It was the one thing that every Christian, with the slightest sense, knows the church has absolute jurisdiction over. Worship itself. Somehow, every church around here failed to uphold the exclusive government of Christ over worship. And instead caved in some notable way by allowing the state to dictate how or even whether they would gather to celebrate the Lord's service. But if you are not gathering to celebrate the Lord's service, or if you are celebrating it in a way which the Lord himself has not commanded, but the state instead, then unfortunately it does not matter what you say you believe. By your actions, you are denying that Christ is your Lord. It is no longer his service. A church whose worship is controlled by the state has a name in China. It is called a state church. State churches submit not to Christ, but to lawless rebellion against Christ, who the state is supposed to represent. A body cannot hold fast to one head while submitting it to the unlawful and rebellious authority of another head. Either it will hate the one and love the other, or it will be devoted to the one and despise the other, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6.24. And what the body does, its members do. That's what a body is. That's why the idea of a body matters, that we understand what it is. It's this fractal structure. The, the members are all implicated in what the body does because the body is a whole. Jared talked to us about union in Psalm 133. Well, that is the same concept. What the body does, its members do. So every person within a church that submits to the state is implicated in toppling Jesus from his position and replacing him with Jacinda. And so Jared and I could not be members of any church nearby. And that meant that we had no choice, as we'll see next week, we had no choice but to start our own church because another thing that we'll look at next week, probably the first thing we'll look at next week, is that a church assembles together. Believers worship as a body. Until those churches repent, unfortunately, it's very hard to see how they can maintain with a straight face that Jesus is Lord because we know that what they profess with their lips, they have denied with their actions. Now, I'm not intending to go on a rant about other churches. It's my true and deep desire to be able to work with them, not to criticize them, not to stand apart from them. I'm saying all of this simply because I want you to understand the crucial importance of the government of Christ to the definition of the church. 
it must be autonomous from the state and autonomous from any other form of government. It just is a separate jurisdiction. It has a separate rulership. It answers to Christ directly. Incidentally, this is why one family cannot be a church because it, it, it's an overlapping of, it's a, a conflation of the jurisdictions. So a church is not under any other law but Christ's. This is the most first foundational requirement for a true church. So as we're assessing the question, is Redwood a church? I believe that we can say with a clean conscience, amen, yes, Redwood is a true church by this part of the definition. This is the very principle on which we were founded. And next week we will look at the other criteria. We'll look at how large a congregation needs to be to be considered a legitimate body. We'll look at whether it requires elders. We'll look at whether it must be bound by a covenant. And of course we'll look at whether it must worship and celebrate the sacraments. Because maybe by many of those standards, we, we might find that Redwood is not yet a true church. But by this first and most foundational criteria, that a church be self-governing, a self-governing body submitted to Christ alone, I believe that we can thankfully say, yes, Redwood is a church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your church. We thank you that you bring believers together. You do not leave them alone, just one family here and one family there, but you, in your providence, draw them together so that they can form a body and worship you. We thank you that there is still a remnant in New Zealand that is willing to stand up as a body under your government and your government only and to be a true church. We ask that you would not make us uh, you not allow us to become arrogant in this, that we would not be presumptuous or haughty, and that we would not presume to stand in judgment over other churches who have stumbled, but that you would raise them back up again, that you would lift their heads, that you would give them repentance for their error, and that they would be renewed in their vigor for declaring your lordship, not just to their own members, but especially to the state and to our society that so desperately needs the rule of Christ over all things. We ask that you would make us instruments in doing this, that you would make us useful in your hands, that you would be able to establish your government over New Zealand. We ask these things in the name of Christ, whose government it is, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.